in these webinars, I really hope to focus on, on the legal framework and where it's failing us. So why are we having so much trouble protecting these places that should be among the most protected places? And I hope that they will expose to people the complexity, cultural complexity, ecological complexity, hydrological complexity of this landscape. That's the voice of Allison Gitlin. She's the project manager for the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club. And for any listeners joining the podcast, I'm Crocky Meshkin, your host for the Grand Canyon TV podcast. Before I jump into my interview with Allison, I want to take a moment to highlight that this episode and the following episodes will be a collaboration between me and the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club. And for anyone out there who has heard of the Sierra Club, yet isn't exactly sure what they do, here's their mission statement. To explore, enjoy, and protect the wild places of the earth. To practice and promote the responsible use of the earth's ecosystems and resources. To educate and enlist humanity to protect and restore the quality of the natural and human environment and to use all lawful means to carry out these objectives. In a nutshell, the Sierra Club is a nonprofit environmental organization. And I think you guys are going to be very pleased with these upcoming episodes. Now realize, the main thing I'm discussing with Allison is a webinar series that she has helped put together. The webinar series is called Irreplaceable Grand Canyon. And it all starts on March 23rd of 2021. And I know you guys are wondering, how much does it cost? It's free. F-R-E-E. It is free. Yes. So, as much as I love having you guys listening to my podcast, I want you to go check out this webinar series after, of course, you listen to this episode. You can RSVP now by going to sierraclub.org slash Arizona and click on events. All right, that's sierraclub.org slash Arizona. You're going to see a bar, click on events, and you will see a listing to where you can RSVP for these webinar events. RSVP and you will get a Zoom link and password. The webinar series will bring together virtually... It will bring together Grand Canyon experts to talk about threats to the Grand Canyon. Now, some of you might think, well, Crocky is a Grand Canyon expert. <sighs> I'm not. All right, guys, I only know so much. At this Sierra Club webinar series, you will hear from First Nations people. You will hear from scientists. You will hear from the top Grand Canyon experts, and they're going to be getting together on virtual calls to talk about these environmental and cultural threats to not only the Grand Canyon, but also threats all around northern Arizona. And don't worry, guys, it's not just going to be a bunch of talking about all these problems. They're going to be getting together to talk about solutions. All right, this is why I took a particular interest in wanting to collaborate with the Sierra Club because I've heard about these things for years. The, you know, uranium mines. I've heard about the contamination happening with Little Colorado River. 
All right, I've heard about developments. There's always some new development, some something new they want to build at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And I wanted to know, how can I do something? How can I get involved? So this is where it begins, guys. Not only for me, yet if you attend these webinars, you're going to find out the actual facts on these things, and you're going to find out what you can do to help. If this is the kind of content that gets you excited, be sure to share this podcast episode. All right, you guys can share this podcast. The Grand Canyon TV podcast is now on Apple, Stitcher, it's on SoundCloud, it's on Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Soon it's coming to Google Podcasts. So anybody you know that enjoys podcasts, tell them to look up Grand Canyon TV and they can find this episode. I will post a link to the webinar series in the show notes of this episode and on the Grand Canyon TV social media. Without further ado, I bring you my interview with Allison Gitlin. Yeah, it's been really interesting because I've actually been having like a lot of really, really, really heavy um, conversations about kind of what we're going to talk about today. And so it's been not only time consuming, but really draining, like, yeah, you know, just very mentally intense. Yeah. So that's well, yeah, I think that's part of, you know, that's why I'm happy to be working with you too, is it's like, you know, you can only do so much on your own. And that's what's fun is when you get people together and you get that conversation, you get to hear the different voices. I'm just trying to empathize with you. But uh, yeah, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of weight to carry when you're trying to tackle these things. It, it is. And, and you know, and I don't know, maybe this is stuff we should be talking about while recording. Because there's the idea of, you know, what is it to be an anti-racist person that's come up over the last year, right? The difference between not being racist and actively actively being anti-racist. And to be anti-racist is to not put the burden of of these things onto the affected individuals and to try to help people understand how they can be less racist in their own lives, right? So, so it's important work to try and understand how to speak for people without speaking and not speak like without speaking for people to speak in defense of people, um, you know, but not be speaking for them. And that is a really hard line. It's, it's not clear and it's not easy and it's something that's really humbling to me, you know? So, yeah, I had a similar conversation with my brother this weekend. You know, I told him record this. I I have it going, uh, so oh, I can okay. so yeah I can edit this in there because yeah this is it's it's a valuable conversation to have and you know I kind of told him I was like hey you know I'm gonna be working on these podcasts and you know we're gonna talk about some of these threats to Grand Canyon on the podcast and whatnot and just sort of you know trying to find that balance of, you know, letting it be known that, you know, a lot of my interest in this is, you know, wanting to learn, wanting to hear different perspectives, because we can be learning so much from other cultures. Dealing with native cultures, you know, in some cases, 
some of this knowledge is very guarded and, you know, it's only shared at certain times or it's only shared to certain people who've gone, who've endured certain things or gone through certain, um, you know, who've earned it in a certain way. Yeah. There's, you know, such a crazy history when it comes to a place like the Grand Canyon, you have native history and you have national park history. And so, yeah, to be outside of both of those and say, what, what, what does everybody want? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, you know, when you get into Grand Canyon National Park, it's hard because it's a place that celebrated, you know, worldwide, right? But for the tribes who live locally, a lot of them don't celebrate it. You know, there's a, a tragic past there and, and it's something that needs to be discussed and needs to be open. And, and, you know, people go to Indian Gardens and go camp there and they don't realize that it's called Indian Gardens because there were Indians gardening there when it was established as a national park and that those people were were viciously evicted. They think that it's called that because someone showed up and there was this, you know, ruin of a garden there because people had been there in the past once before. And and we need to realize that when we are talking about our regional tribes, we are talking about living cultures that have borne the brunt of our development, um, our land policies, uh, our contamination, our water depletion, all of it. And, and so what we're going to talk about in this podcast is how those things are ongoing, still going, and, and threaten to worsen in the future. And so I think these will be really interesting conversations because we'll be talking to a lot of the affected communities about how they're already affected and then what could happen down the road. Allison, let me and the listeners know a bit about your background and your role in bringing this webinar series together. Yeah. First of all, I want to say thank you for having me and for collaborating on this series. I think I'm really excited about it and I'm really excited to work with you on it. Uh, so I work with Sierra Club. I am their Grand Canyon program manager. I'm based in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I've been with Sierra Club for 10 years now. And I've been in Arizona for 26 years now. And in that time, I have learned a lot about what's going on, but I still feel like I have a lot to learn about the cultures of the Grand Canyon region and the issues and and the complexities of these issues that are affecting this this cultural crossroads that I live in, you know, the home of at least 13 different tribes, um, you know, probably more have passed through this area at various times in the past. And these are thriving cultures that are are um, that I feel really honored to learn about. So, uh, a colleague of mine came to me, Gary Beverly, with Sierra Club's Yavapai group, came to me and said, "Let's do a webinar series on Grand Canyon issues. There's so much happening at Grand Canyon right now." And I thought about it, and and I really wanted to put something together that focused on the people and the place because the connection of people in place here is, is something that people are starting to wake up to, but for a very long time, the focus was really on 
looking at Grand Canyon as this untouched world, you know, where, where people had never been until, you know, some Spanish conquistador walked up to the edge and said, wow, it's, it's a big canyon. <laughs> um, and that's just a lie. You know, the, this is a place that people have been living in for a very long time. And the reality of it is that people were violently evicted to make it a national park in a place that people vacation in now. And I am one of those people who vacations there. And, you know, a lot of the people who will be meeting with, you know, um, go there both in a spiritual sense, but also, you know, in a recreational sense. Um, but it's a really complicated place. And I, I think we need to recognize that the threats in the Grand Canyon region, they don't just threaten this untouched world, but they threaten a world that is intertwined with the cosmologies of many, many different tribes. And so when we, when we look at a place like the Little Colorado River, or we look at a place like the San Francisco peaks uh, south of Grand Canyon, and we think about the threats to these places we need to really think about the idea of their irreplaceability and and the connections that people have with them and so you know it, it was a real awakening to me um when last year or two years ago it was i think i'm um, sorry 2020 is a blur um <laughs> When Notre Dame burned, the entire world felt this tug at their heartstrings and, and felt this great sense of loss. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have, you know, the Notre Dame is a, an amazing place that a lot of people connected with, but I wish that the entire world could take that feeling of loss that they had over the Notre Dame Cathedral and realize that native peoples feel that loss constantly over and over as we tear apart places that are important to them. And we can build another Notre Dame. It was created by humans and we are still humans. And although it won't be easy, it will be rebuilt. You know, we have 3D imaging of the whole place, but we do not know how to build a Grand Canyon. We do know do not know how to build the confluence of the Little Colorado River with the Colorado River. We do not know how to build a spring or the San Francisco Peaks. And I think it's really important that we realize what these places mean to people. And also to look at the health of people and how it's related to these places. Um, you know, as, as a Western person, um, you know, we separate what we consider to be like spiritual health from physical health. But a lot of people that we're going to talk to in these webinars and these podcasts are, for them, a lot of this is the same. And I think what we're learning through science is for everyone that these things blur, that your spiritual health yeah. and your physical health overlap. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with that. You know, people that watch some of my other content and videos will see that I'm a pretty active person. I'm in a running 
and I'll, I'll notice that at times I get so caught up in training, you know, training for a half marathon and whatnot. And Flagstaff is, it's almost like, um, what Kenya is to Africa, you know, Flagstaff is to the U S it's elevation. You've got dirt roads everywhere. It's the place where people go to train as runners, but it's not just the science of Flagstaff being 7,000 feet, you know, 2000 meters above sea level. It's, it's the community. So you get a bunch of these people together and you're running in a group and you're supporting each other and you start to get that, you know, like those chills, that, that feeling of, you know, this is special, this is something sacred. And I know I'm, I'm probably going off on a limb. Um, I don't want to go too far from your topic, but, but yeah, I, I think that's definitely something people, you know, would agree upon is, you know, we're, we're finding that there's power in something being sacred you know, we don't just dance because it's fun. Like, you know, running, this is more my, um, my hippie dippy thoughts, but you know, if I just run every day and I'm like, you know, concentrated and I'm trying to have perfect form, I'm, my body's going to get tight. Right. But if you stretch, you know, if you move that kind of dance, that kind of that yin and yang, that logic versus creativity, you need them both. And so, Anyway, um, I, I don't want to completely uh, derail your train of thought. But yeah, I like what you're saying about it's, it's sacred. And we need to, you know, you, you have Grand Canyon Tour Guides and you have the National Park Service. And a lot of the stuff is numbers and figures that you're hearing. I, I personally, you know, after spending about four years at Grand Canyon, I was a tour guide for three years. I've now given up the tour guiding to focus more on this kind of stuff more conversations, more documentary. And that's, you know, what intrigues me is, um, you know, realizing how sacred this is, is changing, definitely changing the way I see the importance of these places. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I also have to realize that, you know, when you or I use the word sacred, that. I can't, I can't possibly understand what these places mean to some of the people that we are speaking to that, you know, they're important to me. They are spiritual places to me, but, but that my concept of sacred, I, you know, I haven't been, my family hasn't been here since time memorial, um, you know, living in relationship with these places. I have lived here for you know 20 something years in relationship with these places and that is very different um, and so we need to to realize that sometimes we can destroy things and not even know what was ever had um, I went to a meeting once where uh, about the Grand Canyon Airport outside TCN and the Arizona Department of Transportation proposes to move a spring-fed tank away from the runway. And this is this is a place that has been used since time memorial by Havasupai tribe, Hopi tribe, and others who have traveled through this region, Wallapai too, and uh, you know, others who have traveled through this region. And they just wanted to move it. I was like, can you move a spring? I don't know that you can move a spring. I this is new to me. Uh, I don't know that engineering has ever achieved that. This is a natural feature <laughs> in a landscape, you know, and I mean, so to me, ecologically, it makes no sense. Uh, but, 
then there's the whole other component of you know the, the meaning of this place as a crossroads to people for generations and and to to organizations like the department of transportation they're not thinking that way it's totally outside their realm so um yeah so we decided to bring this this series forward and and to use the podcast as a way to speak to people a little bit more intimately about who they are and the work that they do and the issues that are important to them. And um, I'm really excited to, for people who come upon this and, and who we can share these conversations with. Awesome. Well, I have the schedule here in front of me. So, you know, this is, Coming up, we got March 23rd, you're going to be talking about uranium mining. March 30th, the Little Colorado River. April 6th, Tucson Development, and that's what uh, you're talking about with the airport, right? That airport um, is also referred to as Grand Canyon National Park Airport, even though it's outside the national park. It's in the town of Tucson. And then, yes, and we'll uh, mostly be focusing on on a large development that's that's planned in the town, but the airport expansion is being planned concurrently. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in hearing these topics because I've heard, I'd say I've heard a lot of like rumors and gossip, and you know, from even living in Tucson when I was working as a tour guide, and I just I'm interested to hear the facts and you know hear get get a better idea of what's at stake. I think when it comes to these topics too, you know, we're talking about how where we're coming from and and what this would mean to us to help get these conversations going while at the same time, you know, trying to live in that world of, you know, what are the facts, you know, not not just completely um um I don't know. It's hard for me to put it into words, but yeah, like not, not just saying like, you know, let's fight, uh, let's fight for this. Let's fight for that. Like, I want to know, you know, what are we looking at? What are, what are, we have actual solutions. I mean, yeah, there are ways of moving forward and that's going to be a focus of this as well. Um, and especially on the last webinar, which is the, um, the one you haven't mentioned yet. Yes. April 13th, we're looking at, Snowball and the San Francisco Peaks. Yeah, so in these webinars, I really hope to focus on, on the legal framework and where it's failing us. So why are we having so much trouble protecting these places that should be among the most protected places in the nation? That's great, yeah. Um, what kind of um, speakers might we expect at these webinars? Yeah, so the first one is on uranium mining, and that will feature uh, Havasupai Council member Carlotta Talusi, and she is going to talk about the tribe's fight against the Pinion Plain Mine, which was formerly called Canyon Mine. The name was recently changed because, uh, quote, environmentalists were associating with Grand Canyon. Uh, the mine is right near Grand Canyon, and unless they pick it up and change it, I'm still going to refer to it as Canyon Mine. Can you, yes. Yeah, so can you mention that just one more time, the new name, because that's, that's news to me. Um, I've, I've heard it called Canyon Mine and this is the one near Red Butte, right? Correct. So uh, it's, it's now called Pinion Plain Mine. It was formerly called Canyon Mine. 
And this is a mine that the Havasupai tribe has been opposing for decades now. Uh, it is within the Red Butte traditional cultural property, and which is a, a you know a live cultural area that is a gathering place for the Havasupai, and it is also important to the Hopi and other tribes. And the tribe has been leading the opposition to this mine, not only because it's within the Red Butte traditional cultural property, but also because the groundwater beneath the mine is linked to the groundwater that feeds the springs of Havasupai. These beautiful, they are the people of the blue-green water, is, is what they call themselves, and their culture is uh, inextricably linked to these beautiful springs that people come from all over the world to see. And that is also not only the base of their economy, it's also the base of their drinking water. And so uh, if, if that water should become contaminated, the entire Havasupai tribe is going to be put at risk. And so Carletta will be talking about their decades long fight against this mine. Um, we're also going to have environmental scientist, uh, Dr. Tommy Rock, who is Danette, Navajo. And he is going to be talking about the abandoned mine issue. So while we have new uranium mines planned in this region, we also live in an area that is plagued by a legacy of contamination from uh, over 500, some people say maybe over a thousand uranium mines and mills that are on the Navajo Nation. And so Tommy's going to talk about his research and how these legacy mines are impacting the water and the health of the, the people on the Navajo Nation. And then um, we also have uh, indigenous organizer, uh, Danette activist, Leona Morgan, uh, who has been doing amazing work to organize against the entire nuclear fuel chain from mining to disposal. And she's going to talk about the work that she does. And, you know, a lot of people call call nuclear a green fuel. They say that it's, you know, it's carbon neutral, uh, you know, which is a lie anyway, because if you look into the trucking and the entire fuel chain, it's, it's not carbon neutral at all. Um, and it's very water intensive as well. And she's going to talk about the implications and the threats uh, from nuclear power from mining to disposal and and the implications for climate. And so I'm really excited to talk about this with the three of them. That one, yeah, that one really strikes me because I've I've never been to Supai or, you know, the, the Havasu Falls and all that. I actually I have a friend who got permits. We we had tried for years, you know, through the system to get permits and we got permits for March of twenty twenty. And, <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't just the pandemic. I, I lost my father March of 2020. And I, I told my friend, I said, you got to find somebody else. You know, I, I, I can't go. I got to go be with my family. And then the pandemic happened and they said, it's all canceled. Um, and so that allowed me, I now have an opportunity to go. So this October, I will go for the first time ever to Supai. And even more reason that I'm taking an interest in this um, is, you know, I don't want to just be the dude who shows up with sunglasses and a swimsuit and is jumping in the water. You know, I, I really do want to 
research as much as I can about Havasupai culture and uh, and and understand too this. Yeah, you you talk about the the mining is far way far away. You know, I don't know how many miles, but from the edge of the canyon. But yet, yeah, it's going to affect any of the water the water table below. It's not that far. It's only about ten miles, and what people need to realize is that the geology in this area is it's what's called karst system. It's a limestone system. And so it's subject to fractures and caves. And so water in some cases can actually move extremely rapidly. And on the North rim, a dye was injected into the ground, a non-toxic dye. And it was detected 22 horizontal miles it traveled, wow. you know, like almost two dozen miles horizontally in, in less than a month. So we don't know how things move on the South Rim because the research just hasn't been done to that, you know, that type of research has not been done. A lot of research has been done enough to show risk for sure. Um, but, you know, if, if contamination gets into that groundwater, then, then it's going to be disastrous. And you know, not just for Havasupai, but for all the springs in the region. So I'm really excited that you get to go there, though, because October is a beautiful time. And, you know, I've been really worried about the the people who do live in Supai Village at the bottom of Grand Canyon, and they have been able to contain, um, you know, because they are so isolated, they have not had any COVID cases in Supai Village at the bottom of the canyon. And so the tribe has been safe which is really exciting, but you know, they, they are some of the warmest people on the planet and they open their, you know, open their home to people from all over the world. So I do hope that people who do visit in the future are respectful of the honor and privilege that they have to go down there and that they, um, you know, do, take all necessary precautions to make sure that they are safe and do not expose people down there to anything. Um, you know, vaccination efforts are underway there right now. So. That's good. All right. So tell me a little bit about little Colorado river. I understand, you know, I know yeah. LCR runs into the main Colorado yet this river goes for like over 300 miles throughout Arizona. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so that confluence area is, has been under repeated threat the last few years. Um, the, the entire river is important, you know, so the, the headwaters start up near the Zuni villages in New Mexico, um, and the river runs, as you said, over 300 miles to where it flows into the Colorado River and Grand Canyon. Um, and there are culturally important springs um, and other important cultural sites near there, uh, up on the rim and at the bottom. Um, and, you know, it, we, one of the things that will emerge is that, you know, we are dealing with very different cultures. And so even though these places have, um, you know, we think of them as, as sacred places and we put them, you know, in a, in this category, but they really mean different things. You know, what is a sacred place to, to one group is, is different than what's a sacred place to another. These cultures are, are extremely diverse. And so, um, you know, we'll learn a little bit about that and through these conversations. 
Um, so we're going to talk about the vital importance of the co little Colorado River and the, the confluence and some of these threats and how they've really challenged this concept of, of tribal sovereignty um, and the ability of, of tribes to protect their cultural landscapes. So uh, there's been you know, tourism development proposed. There's also been dams proposed that would you know, potentially dewater the landscape, change the ecology of the area, uh, remove groundwater and threaten springs. Uh, there's been dewatering of the Little Colorado River up in its headwaters as well. And so there's different threats that are occurring all along this river. And so that one, um, we're going to be talking to um, Ed Kabodi, who is Tewa and Hopi, an, an artist and musician and activist. Um, he's also on the board of um, Black Mesa Trust. And so he's going to talk about from his perspective. Um, and then we have Danette and Chiricahua Apache uh, activist, Serana Riggs, who is the Grand Canyon program manager for Grand Canyon Trust. So she's got a job very similar to mine, uh, working with Grand Canyon Trust. And she's gonna talk about, about her perspective and she's she worked with the Save the Confluence families uh, to fight the development and now is organizing a larger effort to protect this place in perpetuity from future developments and threats that may come. Um, and I, we did just have a cancellation of someone from the Little Colorado River group. And so um, there will be another special guest to be announced. Um, still figuring out who's gonna fill that place. Awesome. Excited, yeah. Excited to talk to Ed Cabote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's a, a treasure for sure. So we also, we, we touched a little bit on Tucson development. Yeah, and the, the Tucson development, uh, we will have uh, Tucson Mayor Clorinda Vale, as well as a former Tucson Mayor and Chairman of the Grand King and Sanitary District, Pete Shearer, who uh, has a tremendous knowledge of the water in the area. Um, and then we're also going to have Havasupai tribal member Colleen Casca is going to talk there because, you know, Tucson and, and the uranium mine that we discussed are close to each other and they uh, are both threatening to the cultural sites that surround Red Butte and they're threatening to the springs and the springs are culturally important, all of them. So uh, we'll talk to, to her as well. That, yeah, that'll be great to hear from them. And then, um, yeah, what's what's going on with the San Francisco peaks and the snowball? Yeah, and um, I was hoping to to be able to offer you some of the native names for the for the peaks because uh, San Francisco peaks is obviously the, the Spanish. Your the and Spanish name. colonizer name, yeah. Um, and I um, so I you know I I hope to to introduce people through these webinars to the traditional names of these places. Um, and so I, I will uh, allow people to pronounce the names um, when they speak. I, li I like that. I'll, I'll be the, I'll be the scapegoat. I'll be the naive guy who, cause I mean, it's real. Everybody shows up and, and they don't know these layers. So yeah, I'll be that naive guy. And then, um, and that'll be a, a, a great part of this is learning, um, yeah, the, the native names for these places. 
All of these names, yeah. And so, um, so at Cambodia and I actually had some discussion about that yesterday because there are, are a lot more names than I even, um, you know, had seen. I I've been introduced to probably about ten different names, and he introduced me to a couple more yesterday. So, um, the these peaks can be seen from all across this landscape. You can see them from the North Rim. You can see them from, you know, way east if you're in New Mexico. Um, you know, you can see them from far to the south, you know, as you're coming up. It's, you know, for, for those of us that live in Flagstaff, you know, we see these peaks and, and that's home to us, you know, but I, for other cultures, it's been home for, you know, since time immemorial. And they are a traditional cultural property. They're, they're eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, which should give them some protection. And in reality, there is very thin protection offered with that. It's, it's not a functional layer of protection in practice. And so we're gonna talk with uh, Havasupai traditionalist, Diana Suyukwala. We're gonna talk about um, talk to uh, Diné activist uh, Cleveland Alley, and we're going to talk to, um, we may have one other guest, I'm, I'm still confirming on that, um, and then we're also going to speak with a gentleman named Jack Trope, who has done a lot of work on uh, sacred place protection and, and has a lot of knowledge on this, and we're going to talk about why the framework for protection here has been so inadequate. Uh, the San Francisco peaks, you know, to use the colonizer name, um, you know, or I might just call them the peaks. Um, but th these places, there are, are 13 affiliated tribes, officially affiliated with the traditional cultural property. There's probably a lot more tribes that, that recognize this as part of their cosmology. Um, they should be one of the most protected places on the planet. And instead, what has been done is just a tragedy. There has been a history of mining and most people recognize that the mining history needed to be stopped. And so uh, there was a mine that was shut down more than 20 years ago now. But there is a ski resort operating the Arizona Snow Bowl that uses 100% reclaimed water to make snow, which is extremely offensive. Uh, it is it, it has rendered people unable to use shrines and sacred sites. There has been extensive clear cutting and development of this resort that has has destroyed some of these places. Um, there is now evidence that there may be reclaimed water moving off of the site. Um, and it's, there's a meadow at the base that, you, that is beloved by everyone I know who's ever been up there um, that is now under more than 10 acres of fill that was moved from other sites where there was development on the mountain and is being allowed to sit there as a um, for a future visitor facility that is unidentified. The Forest Service has had a very, very lax view on, on their enforcement 
um, responsibilities at Snowball. And so uh, there was an environmental impact statement in 2005 that established how many people could visit per day up there. And they have been allowed to make changes to the resort without any public scrutiny, notification, any tribal consultation that has allowed them to operate in excess of those limits. And now um, part of that fill is being used as a parking lot that is being allowed for them to expand their visitation. There's a threatened plant at the top that's extremely culturally important that has been, uh, that they've done completely inadequate monitoring of. Um, it, it is, it's you, a mess and it's can really I, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you, I, I've seen that and you're, you're talking about a plant that grows in like the tundra, like the tundra area. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. I, I just wanted to. Yeah, it's in, the San because, Francisco Peaks Ragwort. Okay, because yeah, because yeah, you even just little details like that, right? Like I know that you, you know, this is what you do, and and you research this stuff, and you talk about this stuff a lot. But yeah, for me, somebody who's like you're really unloading a lot of stuff. You know, I feel like I'm in the loop, and then it's like whoa. There's a lot of stuff, and I I feel like I had heard that at one point, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a species of plant that is at risk, right? It's it's only found, is it is it that like that kind of case? It's only it's found endemic, there. yeah. It's only found up in the tundra at the top of the peaks up there, and it is the, so there was a chairlift that was replaced last year, and they were supposed to do a survey for the plant before they started construction. They started construction. There were a bunch of trees stacked on the Alpine tundra. Um, then they did a survey. The survey was inadequate. So um, Sean Mulford, who is a Diné activist, who's been uh, working on this pretty, um, he's, he's been amazing at bird dogging this situation. And he went up there and looked around and he found a plant that hadn't been inventoried. Uh, not only that, but they, they moved two of the plants as part of this process. And so, you know, does that work? Do we know if that works? I don't know if that works. You can't just necessarily like move an endangered plant and just assume it's going to be okay or threatened plant. Sorry. And so the forest service, as a result of Sean's excellent work, they decided not to move the top terminal they were supposed to put in a retaining wall and all sorts of stuff up there. They, they decided to keep the top terminal where the old terminal had been. Um, so he, he did, you know, make a, he had a small victory there, but, you know, in the meanwhile, they, they put in this, this gondola terminal that's operating now. And, uh, you know, the forest service should have been the ones enforcing this. It shouldn't have been up to Sean to go up there and enforce this, especially during COVID. He shouldn't have had to, you know, to get up up there and check this out. The Forest Service should have been on top of this, you know, and, and what was the urgency to, you know, why did they need this right now during a pandemic, you know, that, that nothing could wait. It's, yeah. it's infuriating, especially with the brunt of COVID that has hit our tribes, you know, on top of all the other health situations that they've dealt with. You know, on top of the the uranium contaminated water, and um, you know, and that has has and lack of running water that has exacerbated the effects of COVID. 
on our tribal nations, um, you know, for, for them to have to be watching over the forest service and making sure that, a, you know, that a culturally important plant on top of a mountain is given its due respect is just, you know, it's emblematic of, of so much that, that I witness that our tribal nations have to go through to defend, you know, the, the, to defend their basic rights. It's, it's infuriating. It's yeah. infuriating for me. I can't imagine what it's like for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can feel that. I think, um, it's, this is definitely, um, yeah, something that's, it's going to have a lot of value to have these conversations in this webinar series. You know, you're, you're really showing me too your analogy with, you know, Notre Dame burning and yeah, you talk about the peaks and they're clear cutting forest. You know, you, you can't just recreate that. Like you're, you might lose species. Even I think in the history of Grand Canyon, isn't it that the original elk, the Miriam elk was hunted out? I mean, wolves have been hunted out. There, there were more bear that lived at Grand Canyon. You know, when you get into these different species that have been sort of pushed out or hunted out and, and talk about how this stuff is still inching in, inching in today, definitely this this stuff needs to be brought to light. Yeah, and I the, we do know that there were wolves um, documented near Grand Canyon. Um, the elk, actually the Merriam's elk probably occurred closer to the Mogollon Ram, which is south of the canyon a ways. Um, and they, it, it's questionable. There may not have been elk documented at the south rim of Grand Canyon until water sources were introduced right outside the gate that invited the introduced Rocky Mountain elk that have been introduced for hunting uh, were able to then migrate to the south rim. So yeah, that one's complicated. Uh, it, just wolves, keep, it just keeps unraveling. There should and, be wolves at Grand Canyon. <laughs> yeah, huh. See, yeah. It's complicated, man. It's, it's, it's it is a, complicated. There's just so much going on. You know, we're really touching, we're touching on these four issues and I hope that they will expose to people the complexity, cultural complexity, ecological complexity, hydrological complexity of this landscape. All right. I'm sold on the value of this. So the most important question is how do people attend this webinar? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So, um, and hopefully on uh, the site where you share your podcast, you can share the link. Um, but what I would tell people would be the easiest thing to do right now um, is to go to the website for the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club and then uh, click on the little tab that says events and activities and they'll be taken to a calendar and then they can sign up for each individual webinar uh, by looking for the dates. And so those dates again are March 23rd, March 30th, April 6th and April 13th of 2021. Um, and all of them are at 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Arizona time. And for those of you who are outside of Arizona, be aware that Arizona does not change its clocks. The rest of the country shouldn't either, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. uh, we do not change our clocks. So five o'clock for us is not the same as five o'clock for the rest of the mountain time zone uh, by the time we 
Uh, start with us. Different time zone. Pull it up on your smartphone. It should be able to pull up uh, Arizona or, or Phoenix. Pull up Phoenix or Flagstaff and it'll show you the time difference. Yeah. And if you oh. sign up on Zoom, it'll automatically do that correction for you. There you go. There you go. So uh, what else? Um, any last thoughts here? Um, just that I, I, I really want to emphasize, you know, the humility that I am approaching this with because I do have so much to learn from these people and I really I, I, I want to emphasize that these conversations are with the hopes of focusing on affected communities and focusing on the great work that's being done by all of these people as well as um, the problem solving that they are trying to do on the fly and what we need to give them better tools as a nation to protect these places that are so important to them, you know, whether they be important cultural sites or the very basic things like clean water, um, you know, and, and the ability to live in comfort, knowing that your home is not threatened by radioactive dust blowing in your window. You know, these are things that the rest of us take for granted. We take for granted that, you know, our, our religious places have sanctity and protection. And we take for granted that when we, you know, most of us, um, and I, you know, obviously this is not uniform across the nation, but for, you know, for most of us who do not live on a, in a tribal nation, or do not live in a reservation, you know, we can turn the tap on in our sink and we can get a glass of water and we know that it meets basic safety standards. And, uh, you know, I know that if there was a uranium mill a quarter mile away, it would have been cleaned up by now. You know, it wouldn't have been sitting since the 1950s blowing in the wind. And so it's, it's, it's infuriating and I, I hope that people can can learn and think about what can be done differently in the future and and how they can get involved. You know, we're also gonna try and give people a more immediate action that they could take for each of these items so that they can, you know, help with the issues at hand right now. Yeah, I'll share these links in the show notes and description. And uh, I look forward to also attending myself, attending this webinar series. Crocky, tell me about why, why you wanted to collaborate and what your interest is in this. Yes. So um, I've spent about four years at the Grand Canyon now. And originally I showed up for work. You know, I was looking for a job. I was finding, you know, these seasonal jobs online, applying at different national parks and Grand Canyon really just resonated with me. I'd only been there one time before, before moving there and, and getting hired to work as a tour guide. But it was almost like, um, it was almost like a, like a mix of, you know, going on a crazy journey to another world, but going to like college or something, like becoming a tour guide, like they pay you to learn all these things. Right. So we would have sessions of learning cordage 
you know, making cordage with the yucca. We'd learn about different wildlife. And suddenly I was realizing just how far I had become removed from the natural world. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I spent 12 years living in Los Angeles and show up to Grand Canyon. And I'm like, wow, like this is what I've been missing. This is so fulfilling. And so, you know, after three years of tour guiding, started to burn out on that a little bit of just doing, you know, telling these stories. And I, I would change up stories. I'd make it fun. But, you know, more so I think thinking I, I would call myself and, and I hate using the term um, like terms like empath and this kind of stuff. But I'm a pretty sensitive guy. Right. I'm not like a tough, you know, like, argh, like, man, man, like I'm I got a pretty I got a pretty uh, I got a soft side. And. And yeah, just seeing, you know, going out to Desert View on the tours and would usually let my guests have some free time. And then in that free time, I would usually go and talk to these different natives that were doing cultural demonstrations at Desert View because I just had such an interest in their culture and, you know, to just learn from them. And, and more and more started to see like, what am I doing as a tour guide here? And not not to say that like nobody should be a tour guide at the Grand Canyon if you're not from the Grand Canyon or if you're not native but i really you know i know my skills you know i've got 12 years of working in uh film television and music i've got all these skills and so it really just started to change like i my i didn't go to college but i have a technical degree in audio engineering so it's like it makes sense for me to start doing a podcast you know, I know audio, I know how to mix sound, I know how to edit video. And so, yeah, it's probably too also just part of getting older is is starting to see, okay, you know, I've had my fun in my 20s, but now as I get older, what what am I doing? What's my role in the world? You know, what can I do to leave the world a better place when I go? Yeah, it's a wonderful trajectory. You know, you visited Grand Canyon once, and then we're eligible to be a tour guide, which says something from the start, um, you know, and then, and then coming to this realization is amazing, you know, that you were able to have that, that self-actualization and that uh, respect for the place and the people that you were able to step back. And I think that's really important. And I'm excited that you get to have conversations one-on-one -on -one with each of these people because they are, are inspirational to me. I, 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 I'm very, very excited about getting all these people in a room, you know, a, a virtual room to talk to one another and and seeing what happens because these are all just amazing minds. Well, yeah, it's been awesome to chat with you, Allison, and I'll see you see you in a, uh, see you at the webinar. Sounds great. Thank you so much for hosting and and participating. I hope you guys enjoyed tuning in to my discussion with Allison. A reminder, go to sierraclub.org slash Arizona. And on the top, you'll see a bar. Click on events. And you'll see a link to RSVP for the first episode of this Grand Canyon webinar series. The first episode will be focused around uranium mining. Go there, RSVP. And... Next episode here on the Grand Canyon TV podcast, we're going to have sort of a post show. So uh, somebody or a couple people from that webinar, they'll come on 
Grand Canyon TV podcast to have sort of a further discussion. So you guys will definitely want to experience the webinar and then you'll see the episode pop up on here. And we'll keep this rolling uh, throughout the next couple episodes. And that's it for this episode. See you guys next time. Grand Canyon TV.